morning. When I was a... Uh, When I was a wee little lad, I knew how to make notes come up on the screen. No one really knows why they aren't. Oh, okay. It's doing the thing again. It's going to be a long sermon. <clears throat> remember that time I preached without notes and like half our members left? No, I'm kidding. Let's try it. Let's see how it goes. Um, when I was a kid, the, one of the things that I, I loved to do is, you know, my mom would take me with her, with me, her wherever I, I would go, and, and there'd be, she'd take me to the department stores, and there'd be these, you know, those carousel kind of things with clo- the clothing racks that are circular. Uh, as a little kid, I, I absolutely loved those, because to, to the average shopper, they're just a rack, rack full of women's clothing that's entirely uninteresting. But to me, they were either, you know, a castle or a cave or some kind of place to escape or hide in, and so I would always be playing in them, because you can go in there, and no one in the store knows you were there. I always thought, like, as a kid, you could hide in there, and they'd close the store down, and then you just had the run of the place, and how cool would, would that be? And so for me, it was just a game and an innocent thing that I didn't think anything of, but to my mom, it was sheer mental terrorism, because I would hide in these things, and I would go from, you know, round circle to round circle to round circle, and eventually I might make my way further away from her than I thought I was ever, and so the time came for her to find me, and she would yell out, and of course, I'd be so absorbed into whatever was happening in my mind that I wouldn't be listening, you know, and so inevitably, I'd get lost, and my mom would be absolutely terrified, absolutely 100% terrified, because I was lost, and she would be walking around the store trying to figure out where her, you know, five, four, six, seven-year-old son went, and I was just having the time of my life, innocently wandering around, not thinking anything of it. But here she is, frantically looking for me. And if you're a parent, you know there's no feeling worse or more terrifying when you have a, a child with you than, than losing them and thinking that they might not be found again. Right? That is just a mortifying thing. We've had a few times, I, I mean, I'll lose Graham in the church, and I know he's somewhere in this building, but until I put eyes on him, I'm absolutely terrified, even in this space. Right? And I know he's smart enough not to run outside, but she just never know. Right? There's this terrified thing that comes with it. There's a similar story happens in the Gospel of Luke that we've been studying. We've been in this series called King for All and looking through a survey of the book of Luke. And there's a unique story to only Luke that we see in here in the end of Luke chapter 2. It's unique for a a couple of reasons that we'll get into after we read it. But one of the things to note is the end of chapter 2 is kind of the last bit of information we get before Jesus starts his public ministry. Right? When we get to Luke 3, we've jumped ahead. You know, Jesus is in his 30s, and he begins his public ministry. And when we look at the beginning of Luke 1, after the little intro that we dealt with last week, everything we see from that point until our passage today is the, the birth narrative of Jesus that, that I'm not going to cover in this series, only because I feel like we, we pretty exhaustively cover Luke 1 and, and most of chapter 2 when we get into the Christmas narrative, right? The birth of Christ is what we read. If we go at Christmas Eve and we don't read something from Luke 2, we're probably doing it wrong. And so I'm not skipping it because it's not important, but I'm skipping it because it's, it's gotten its, its coverage <laughs> over, the, over the years in this church and any church that you hopefully or might have been a part of. And so this morning, I want us to start looking in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. So let's stand together. We'll read this kind of unique account that we see in that gospel, and we'll see if we can't figure out what is going on. And uh, Carlton, I'll just ask you to make sure the slides work 
because they seem to work there, but not there, and who knows what's happening. Um, The Lord is testing me this day. Let's read. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast has ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be be indeed. Have a seat. So this is a, a passage that is unique for a couple of reasons. Number one, we only get it in the book of Luke. This is our only accounts of this particular story. We don't see it anywhere else. But furthermore than that, it's the only account that we actually have of Jesus's youth and upbringing. Right? If, we, if we discount the birth narrative, right, when, when we actually learn of Jesus's birth, uh, we, we have a lot of information about the time period of Jesus's adolescence kind of in broad history. We know what was happening with kings. We know about Herod and his, his desire to hunt down all those who were newborns and he was going after them. And so we, we kind of know what's happening in the world, but we don't get any insight from Scripture into the actual growing up life of the boy Jesus, other than this one little passage. And that begs really a few questions. Number one, why not? Why is it that the Lord didn't see fit to, to allow us to have any insight into what it was like to watch Jesus grow up from birth into his 30s when he began his public ministry? That's, that's three decades of information about, about the, the incarnate God on earth that we don't get. Think about how crazy that is. Jesus walked on this earth for some 33 years, and three years of it is all we know about. That's, that's kind of a pretty bad percentage point of our understanding of Jesus' life on this earth as a fully human being. But the, the other question then begs, if we don't have any information outside of this passage, more importantly, well, why would God see fit for us to know this one seemingly odd thing about Jesus as a boy? Right? There's nothing else. But for whatever reason, of all the things that Jesus did from birth to his public ministry beginning, there's this one instance, this one little thing here, is what God saw fit to share and reveal to his people through his word. And so there's got to be something in here that's significant or important to us. Otherwise, why include it, right? Is it just a fun, hey, if you want to know what Jesus was like as a boy, here you go. No, like there's got to be more to this passage. And there is, right? So Let's, let's dig into it a little bit and see what is going on here. It starts with this. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Right? So every single year, 
if you were a Jewish male above the age of 13, you were required to attend the Passover and some other things as well, such as Pentecost and the, you know, the um, various feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles, all those kinds of things. You were required a few times throughout the year to pilgrimage and to attend those things. As, as a Jewish male. It was not an optional thing. It wasn't like a trip. You know, like I talk to a lot of Boy Scouts and they get really excited when they get to go to Philmont. But not every Boy Scout has ever been to Philmont. So it's this like exciting thing that you kind of maybe hopefully get to do. No, like if you were a Jewish male, you went. Didn't matter where you lived, didn't know how much money you had, how small your village was. You, you would go to celebrate Pentecost, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And in this case, they would go to the Passover. Right? And so um, they're, they're going, and so what's significant here isn't really that Joseph goes, but what's significant is that it says now his parents went right, every year. Because actually women were not required to go and attend the Passover. It was a requirement of Jewish males. And, and while there is scriptural evidence that, that some women went, you know, we know that Hannah went, we can see that in 1 Samuel, there's some references to her going kind of on a regular basis to celebrate the Passover. It wasn't all that common all the time for women to go. At least it wasn't required. And so if the whole family went, it was kind of an extra measure of faith, right? They didn't just do the bare requirements. It wasn't just, all right, it's time. We'll see you later, Joseph. I stay home with the kids where it's comfortable. No, the whole family of Jesus annually made the pilgrimage. It says they went every year, and so the, the very opening verse of this gives us a testament to the faithfulness of Jesus' parents in their practice of faith. Each year they would go and be a part of this. And then the next verse tells us, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast has ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed in Jerusalem. And his parents didn't know it. And so when he was 12 years old, Jesus was, was coming with them. And this is, just, this is presumably not the first time that he has ever attended the Passover, but it's a significant age, right? And, and here's why. If we look at some documents outside of Scripture, you know, in things like the Mishnah, what we'll see is that every Jewish male, like I said earlier, 13 or older, was required to go. And the reason for that is that every Jewish male, 13 or older, was considered to be a, a grown adult male. We still do this today. When you have Jewish friends, they celebrate bar and bat mitzvahs to, to, to celebrate the coming of age, the moving into adulthood. But a male Jew at the age of 13 would have been what we consider to be a full member of the covenant, a full member of the synagogue. We have this to a degree uh, even kind of carried over into churches of today. A lot of times we'll, when you have kids that move into around that same age, Right? We'll do things like confirmation class. And you know, if you're an eight-year-old kid in the church, you're not really a voting member. You know, but then you become a, a, a member, and there's, there's 14, 15, 16-year-olds in churches that have become members through confirmation class, and they can vote in congregational meetings. They have the same voice as any of us do. And so we, we get that from this time. But what this means is that this would be one of the most significant years for Jesus to be attending the Passover, because he was... 12. He was one year away from becoming a full-fledged adult Jewish male in the eyes of the community. And so this year wasn't like other years. 
We can presume that in the years that led up to, to this time that they, when they would go, if you know, he might stay with his mom and while, while Joseph went off to do the, the worshipful duties of the house, he would go into the courts and, and do the various things like, like slaughter the lamb and all those kinds of things that would happen, that, that maybe Jesus stayed behind with the family and they just, for, that, for him it was kind of, a, kind of looking from the outside in a little bit as a kid, but as a 12-year-old boy, something significant happened. He started to come under the wing of his father everywhere he went during the time of the Passover. And so Jesus would have experienced some of these things for the first time. We have to remember, Jesus is fully human. And so he, as a little boy, picture you being a 12-year-old boy, walking into Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. It was an absolute zoo. The population of Jerusalem would increase perhaps a hundredfold. There'd be commotion everywhere. Everywhere you walked, there'd be people selling their wares. And, and, you know, you could buy what you needed to stay there for the week. And you could buy what you needed to worship, the animals for sacrifice. It was just an absolute chaotic zoo of a city in a way that we can't even imagine today during the time of the Passover. And so Jesus, as a little boy, walks in and gets to experience this. And he knows this is the year where I pay attention. It's almost like an apprentice kind of year where I'm going to have to watch what dad does closely because next year I'm going to have to do it. And so he goes where dad goes. He does what dad does. He sees all the aspects. When it came time, one of the first things they do when they get there is they would figure out a way to get their lamb, whether they brought it or bought it, and they would go into the temple and all the males would go into the inner court where the women weren't allowed, but Jesus was, was now there right next to his dad and they would have all the Jewish men and they would slaughter their lamb. And the blood would be collected by the various priests. They would have more priests in town than they normally would have because of just the sheer amount of people. And they would collect the blood and they would be putting it to the bottom of the, of the altar in worshipful fashion. Right? And then the dads would be dressing the, the lamb to take back to their places of stay to have as a feast that night. And those feasts would be epic. Your best family reunion doesn't have anything on a Jerusalem Passover feast with your family. There'd be people singing and dancing in the streets. The celebrations would go long into the night. The kids that were 12 years old that had to go to bed at a certain time were able to stay up as long as they wanted. And it lasted for a whole week. And Jesus is there soaking it all in as he's starting to come of age, watching all these things begin to happen and watching his dad. The passage then goes on. We get to the end of their time. And then 44, it says, Supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey because Jesus stayed behind, right? It's the morning of departure. This is like a home alone Kevin McAllister kind of thing almost, right? Like everybody's ready. They start walking. It's like, all right, Jesus, got you. Everybody else here, we're, let's go. And they start leaving Jerusalem and they, they go out in a, in a big group and they go a whole day's journey. And Jesus is then not found to be with them because he remains in the temple. Right? And so when we, when we look at this passage, I, I really have two questions. Number one, what kind of parent travels for a whole day until they notice that their own son isn't with them? And then, they, then it says they had to go a whole day back and then spent the third day actually looking for Jesus once they got back. Right? I don't know about you, if I, I can go like three minutes where I'm like, oh man, where's my son? I've never gone a whole day and been like, oh shoot, I haven't seen Graham all day. Even when he's 12, I'm not going to do that. 
Right? If I go 24 hours and I don't know where my, where my son is at 12 years old, I'm not doing something right. Either that or I'm out of town and, and Britta's not doing something right. But one of us messed up. Right? And so what is going on there? But the more important question to me is this. Jesus was Jesus. He knew that his folks were leaving. He saw the caravan presumably go, and he remains. And so here's, here's a, a real challenge theologically with this verse. And the big question that comes out of it is, did Jesus sin here? Because Jesus didn't obey his parents. He knew they were leaving, but yet he stayed back. So what gives there? Are the parents crappy parents? And is Jesus, as a 12-year-old, a sinner? Well, that can't be, right? Because Scripture tells us over and over again. You can look through any book in the New Testament, whether it's Corinthians or Galatians or 1 John or Hebrews. There's mention after mention after mention to make really darn clear that Jesus was in every way sinless. That he committed no wrong, no trespasses. That he wasn't just a person who did not do sinful things, but that he hadn't, didn't have a sinful heart. He didn't have a proclivity towards sin. He couldn't have sinned. It's not even in his DNA to sin. But yet here we see a clear disobedience of his parents. Well, what gives? So first, the parents. Um, one of the things that we need to understand is that it talks about how um, they were, were walking in a group, right? It says in verse 44, but supposing him to be in the group, they went today's journey. Group is a bad translation. A better translation would be a caravan because the, the traveling party would be dozens and dozens and dozens of people, right? All the people from that town would have probably walked together. And so pr presumably Jesus didn't just walk by himself with his mom and dad and, and whatever brothers to Jerusalem from their hometown, but he walked with a whole bunch of people, cousins, distant relatives, fellow townsfolk. They all walked together because those journeys were really dangerous and there is strength in numbers. And so it's not necessarily bad parenting. His parents probably just assumed that he was walking like two, three dozen people down with a cousin or a, or a brother or a family friend because that would happen. The kids would walk together, right? When I was growing up, uh, I didn't sit with my parents in church. I sat in the balcony with a bunch of youth. And we try to make faces at the pastor and see if we can get them to, to throw them off somehow. <laughs> so feel free to try. The lights are pretty bright. I can't see half of you most of the time. So if you're in the back rows, you're out of luck. But if you're in the front couple of rows where Presbyterians don't dare sit, you might be able to catch, my, catch me making a face you know, and throw me off. But that's what I would do. I wouldn't sit with them. But my mom didn't wonder if I was in church. She knew that I was up there. It was fine. She didn't look back every three seconds, thinking I would run as a 12, 13, 14, whatever. You know. But that's what was happening. And so they, they noticed they'd gone about a day's journey, and as they're starting to make camp, they're like, you know, Jesus, I haven't seen Jesus. I thought, I thought he was back with, you know, with Bob, but he's not. And so they started to walk around and ask questions. They said, well, was Jesus walking with you? It's not bad. They wouldn't have had a reason to wonder. Because it was Jesus. Presumably, he hadn't really messed up until that point because he's Jesus. He was trustworthy. They just assumed he was with someone else. And so as soon as they notice, they go back a day's journey. They walk by themselves. Remember, dangerous to be alone. The two of them walk totally by themselves through the wilderness to get back to Jerusalem. A whole day's journey through all that danger, panicking. And then they find Jesus in the temple. Right? And so bad parents? No. There's some culture issues here. What about Jesus? Bad Jesus? I don't think so. 
And let's look a little bit at what happens when they get there. And I think that'll tell us kind of why Jesus is not a sinful person here. It says, after three days they found him. And he was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Presumably they were with some of the te- he was with some of the teachers, some of the rabbis in the outer courts, because it says they found him. So if, if Mary was there, she was, it had to have been in the outer court, not the inner court. Um, but they're there, and, and, and they're asking questions. And he says, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And his parents saw him, and they were astonished. Right? So here is Jesus, 12-year-old boy Jesus, when they find him, he's hanging out with all the teachers. and He's having conversations at like a PhD level that no one could have imagined a 12-year-old boy would have, right? And all the teachers are astonished at the way that Jesus is interacting. They're, they're astonished at the kinds of questions that he's asking. They're questions that no one else in that age range or really any age range has been asking before. And the answers that he's able to give and the way that he's able to, to spitball ideas with them, the conversation just amazes the parents, and all of the, the teachers, the religious folks. Because they've never heard anybody talk like this, answer like this, question like this. Right? But that's what Jesus is doing. Is he doing something geniusly miraculous here? Is this a, the divine side of Jesus on display? See, I don't think so. I don't. I, I think one of the things we have to remember is, is when we say that God, Jesus, was fully God and fully man, that means he was fully man. And part of that fully man means that he, he grew up and he didn't just know things. Like two-year-old Jesus couldn't do advanced trigonometry because he was Jesus and divine. Right? It wasn't like a baby with a 33-year-old's brain. Jesus was fully human and part of that included human development. And some of the foolishness that comes with being a two, a five, a seven, a nine, a twelve even a 17, 18-year-old, right? It's not that it was sinful, but it's that he was developing and growing. And so one of the things we need to see about this time frame is Jesus would have experienced this Passover celebration unlike any other 12-year-old boy. Because what's happening in this passage and why I think God saw fit to include it here is that we're getting to see Jesus coming into his own identity, as the Son of God. I think that 12-year-old Jesus at this Passover, during this time, is starting to come to terms and to understand as he develops in his fully human nature who he is. I think Jesus at times, not that he's ever not divine, but I think he, he chooses not to avail himself always of the fullness of his divinity so that he can experience the fullness of our humanity. And so as he's watching Hundreds of lambs get slaughtered in celebration of the Passover lamb, both at the time of the Exodus and the foreshadowing of the lamb who will be the ultimate Passover. Imagine this. Jesus is there watching his dad sacrifice a lamb, watching hundreds of other Jewish men faithfully sacrificing lambs in anticipation of the lamb. And he's starting to realize, wait a minute, I think I'm that lamb. They're they're anticipating me. Imagine what that would do to your identity. I don't know about you. If I was 12 years old and I started to figure out that I was God, it would not go this way. Like, I, I, I would be a nightmare. Like, parents everywhere pray, 
right? That, that your children at 12 years old don't somehow become a megalomaniac and develop a God complex and think that they're divine. Because, man, can you imagine as a 12-year-old finding out that you're God? You would make your parents' lives miserable. You're not obeying your parents anymore. They're obeying you. Guess what? Why? Because you're God. Oh, my mother would have done so much for me. I would have never cleaned my room again. I would have eaten whatever I wanted. I would have had it brought to me. She'd be waving palm trees. Imagine, imagine the identity stuff going on in your head. Think back to when you were 12, not as God, just developmentally, what you were going through, trying to figure out who you were and what you were. And, you know, that's why you see middle and high schoolers changing their appearance and doing crazy things. They're trying to figure out who they are. And Jesus says his full humanity is no different. He's trying to figure it out, and he's starting to learn that he is the son of the Father. Can you imagine the, the night before they left? Everybody else is asleep. Do you think Jesus was sleeping? No, his mind was going a million miles an hour. He had so many questions and oddly had answers that he didn't know he had because his divinity is, is mingling in and playing along with everything. And as he wakes up, he's, he's, people are leaving and they're saying, Jesus, we're leaving. And he goes, yeah, 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 I know. And then he sees the, the teachers and he's like, I got to ask some questions. And he goes and he's asking questions and he's giving answers. The next thing you know is... An hour went by, two hours, three hours, four hours. What felt like five minutes to him in this crazy identity crisis, all of a sudden, hours have passed. And so I don't believe that Jesus disobeyed his parents willfully. I think Jesus disobeyed unknowingly. I don't think he, he actually disobeyed his parents. I think he was just so caught up in the discovery and growing of who he was at that young of an age. That the next thing you know, he's just like, oh, my parents are gone. And you can tell that he comes into an understanding of who he is as they find him because of the way this passage continues. <clears throat> and when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mom said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Right? Have you ever done this when you find your kid? Don't do that to me. You scared me half to death. Right? You, you yell at your kid. You're not even actually angry with them. It's just the relief, but it comes out in yelling because you're just so happy that you found your kid again, right? What do they do? You, you've treated us so. Behold, your father and I have been searching for you, and we've been in great distress. We were worried sick about you. And Jesus' reply tells us that he, he has figured out who he is. He said, why, why were you looking for me? Did, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? What he's saying is, oh, mom, mom, dad, where else would I be? This is, this is my dad's house. Is there really any other logical place for you to look for me than here? I'm, I'm, I'm the son of the father. This is my father's house. So this is my house. I, I wasn't lost. I, I'm home. Right where I belong. Where else would I be than in the house of my father? Right. I think this is we get to see this passage because we get to see the moment that, that Jesus comes into, as a human, the humanity of Jesus comes into a full understanding of who he is. Right? He's always 100% divine, but the human side of him starts to get a grip and a grasp of who he is, and so he stays in the place where he most belongs, where he ought to be, the only place that makes sense to be. Right? So what do we do with this. How does this shape us? 
it's, it's a cool thing to get to see kind of Jesus become Jesus in a way, right? At least become aware of, of himself. But how does this shape us? What do, we, what do we do with this? And I think the last two verses of the text really help us get there. It says that when he tells them that, well, where else would I be? First off, his parents don't understand what he's talking about, which is fine and makes sense because they're, 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 they're human beings with a limited understanding, and he's just become aware of the fact that he's God. So he's saying things that they don't understand, and I don't think there's anything weird about that. But then here's the rest of this passage and how it ends before we get to uh, you know, some of the, the history and, and, and John the Baptist preparing the way. This is the final part of Luke 2. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. So they find him, they have their interaction, and then he goes home with them. And he was submissive to them. See, Luke seems to be very intense on pointing out to us that he went home with them, but then that he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. The result of this whole thing, of this, of this crazy week in Jesus' life, of his unbelievable coming into self-awareness, what, what, he, what he does with all that information is he goes home with his parents, and the first thing that 12-year-old Jesus, who just figured out he's God, does is submit to his earthly parents. Again, I challenge you and your 12-year-old self, if you became aware of your godness, would your first thing that you do be to go home and submit to your parents? Probably not. Mine wouldn't be. We've already talked about that. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He goes home and he submits to his parents. And then scripture tells us that because of that submission to, to his parents, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God, his father, and his fellow man. That's the result of the obedience. And so I think we learn two things. Number one, when we obey and submit to the father, it grows us in favor and wisdom and stature with both God and man. It doesn't mean that when we obey the Father that man loves us, right? Sometimes our enemies hate us, and that's part of life. But when you obey and walk with the Lord, there tends to be blessing that is associated with that. And not in a way of, if I listen to God, I get a million dollars and a new car. But there is blessing. When we walk in the statutes of the Lord, when we, as people of God, live into the ways of God, we're living into the way that we're designed to be, things tend to go well. There's blessing associated with obedience. And it was true for Jesus, and it's also true for us. But the second thing is, where does that obedience come from? It comes from the fullness of understanding our own identity as children of God. Because through Christ, through his sacrifice and his suffering and his death on the cross and his resurrection, he has made us and purchased for us the rights to be called children of God. Right? Jesus was able to submit to his parents in a way he hadn't to even before, in a degree and a fervor and an attitude that he wasn't able to have before because he figured out who he was and he had a security in who he was. And likewise, we, one of the precursors to us being able to obey the Lord is to have an identity as God's children. It's what gives us security, what gives us belonging, what gives us purpose. Right? One of the things that 
you, you learn when you start to look at like parenting books and all those kinds of things is the number one thing that your children need to be able to be in any way attention-paying, obedient children is to feel love and safety. When you start to remove love and safety, they spiral. I can watch this with my kid. When he thinks I'm mad at him, it, it turns into a behavioral spiral. And so sometimes I can't just yell at him until he listens. He's four. I got to get down on his level and I got to give him a hug and I got to make sure that he's secure, that he feels love and not shame, that he knows that he is my son and I am his dad and I love him no matter what he does. And then at some point he calms down enough to start to have what are the next steps, what are the disciplines that are going to come, right? But first, he's got, he's got to come off the mountaintop, right? If you just keep yelling, he just keeps spiraling to the point where he, his brain just isn't able to, to function anymore. He needs to feel that he, that he is my son and I am his dad no matter what before he's able to function at all. We function in the same way. If we don't know that we are God's children, if we don't have the security that comes with that identity and that security and that purpose, when all those things don't, don't play in our hearts, we freak out and we, we go and we behave however we want because we need to make sure that we get what we need on our own. Right? We can't obey God if we don't feel secure in him and his identity. We're too worried about ourselves and what are we going to be okay? And if I do the things that God asks me to do and things don't go well on earth for me because of it, well, then what? Right? If I give in a way that's sacrificial, will I have enough? Like The, the mentality that removes the identity of, of, of God's children from us is the mentality that panics and has to do it our own way to make sure that we're good. But when we find security in God as our Father, when you know who you are and whose you are, that's what gives you freedom and ability to submit because you know that the one who you belong to is good and has you and protects you and cares for you and loves you and treasures you and prospers you. And so when you receive that identity, when you become aware of the fact that you are God's child through the cross of Christ crucified, that's what enables obedience. And anywhere in our hearts where we lack the ability to obey, it's because we lack an understanding of our identity in Christ. Maybe we know it here, but we might not absorb it here. And so our heart acts out. You want to know how do you walk in a deeper and more abiding obedience with God? It's not about buckling down and trying to be more obedient and faithful. It's about coming more and more to grips with your identity. It's preaching the gospel to yourself until you have just so ingrained in your heart that you are God's child. But the result is just, yeah, I can, I can submit that. Right? My, my wife, Britta, and I can submit to each other in ways that we don't submit to anybody else. Why? Because I know her. I know her heart. I know her motivations. I know that she cares for me. I know that when I let things go that I couldn't let go with other people, that it's okay. Right? I have a security in her and she in me. And that allows me to, to walk with her in a, in a more deep comfort and a mutual respect and love and care and submission than, than anyone else on this earth. It's how it works with the Lord. And I think that's why God chose to give us this account in Luke. 
Because Jesus, as a 12-year-old, without even knowing it, is exemplifying what it means and looks like to live as one of God's children. And years later, when he enters his public ministry, that's what he teaches us to do. So just like I became a child of God, just like I am the, the, the son of the Father, so through me you are also children. So walk in obedience, not out of compulsion, but out of rest. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you that you call us your children. We thank you that in you we can find life and security and hope. We thank you that we get to rest in that. We praise you that in you we find rest. Lord, this morning, as we walk from this place, we pray that you would remind us that we are your children and you are our Father, that through the cross of Christ, we live into the reality of being heirs of the kingdom, sons and daughters, and that our obedience might flow from that reality. We love and we praise you. All people said.